Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Saddle hunting for me has been a complete, and I hate even saying the word, uh, game changer for how I how I like to hunt. If you've been thinking about getting into the saddle, now is the exact perfect time to do it. You have the entire spring and summer to kind of dangle in the backyard and get prepared for the upcoming season, be able to practice all your shots, getting in and out of the tree, experiment with your different climbing options that you have uh, to lighten your load and be more mobile. If you're interested in getting hooked up and getting into a saddle, I would definitely be checking out Tethered. They have Two great saddles out. One is the new Phantom saddle, which is killer. It has a bunch of new comfort features that are built into it, as well as a utila bridge to kind of help with lengthening and shortening the bridge to make sure you have the optimum comfort. And you can get the uh, the OG, as I like to refer to it, uh, that I've been doing my hunting out of the past couple of years, which is the, the Mantis saddle. I might also recommend the Predator platform, especially if you're transitioning from a tree stand to a saddle. It gives, just gives you that little bit a uh, sense of familiarity that you would have with a, a platform under your feet that you would have that would be similar to a uh, similar to a tree stand. And it made my transition a couple years ago really seamless from tree stand hunting to, to saddle hunting. So if you're interested in checking out more about saddle hunting in general, I would head over to tetherednation.com. Check out all their products. They have some killer YouTube videos. You will thank me later. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee, and I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee, as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 181. Today I'm joined by my buddy, Tony Peterson, and we're talking public land travel hunting. So stay tuned. All right, all right. What is going on out there, people? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine on this fine day of June, whatever day you might be listening to this or whether you're listening to it in the morning or in the afternoon. Turkey season is over. Um, for me, it's yeah, you've heard me say this a hundred times. It's almost over before it even starts most, most of the time. Um, but it is officially over, um, which means now we turn our attention full tilt toward whitetails. Um, and this past weekend, I kind of turned the page in that regard and was kind of waiting. You know, one of the things I always wait until after, 
you know, I do a little bit of turkey hunting, but I always wait till after turkey season till I go out and really kind of do any additional, you know, deer work, so to speak, whether it's, you know, scouting or putting out cameras or, or whatever the case is, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons. One, I don't, you know, if it's Sundays in PA, you know, of course you, you can't hunt. There's a handful of Sundays this year that, that you can, but you know, um, that's all, oftentimes days that I'm, I'm using to get a bunch of stuff done on the weekend, uh, you know, prepping for the week, like putting this podcast together and stuff like that. Um, so Saturdays is really like the day to go out and do it. And I don't want to booger up someone else's hunt. Also don't potentially want to be mistaken for a turkey. So I just kind of stay out of the woods unless I am specifically, you know, turkey hunting, um, you know, during turkey season. So as soon as turkey season is over, it's usually kind of marks the time for me to go ahead and get back out into the timber. And if I'm going to do that and start thinking about putting cams up and stuff like that. And that's what I did this past weekend. Um, you know, I only, I only got two cameras out. Um, they were two that I was kind of prioritizing, um, because they were a new area. So I, I jumped in the kayak. That was the first maiden voyage of the kayak and paddled into, you know, two different areas where I wanted to hang a camera where I think that I'm going to have some, some opportunity, you know, the, and just in, you know, a full report, I guess the, the kayak trip was good. I think it was just a little over, uh, a little over two miles, I think round trip, um, for, uh, for the first maiden voyage. So it wasn't, so it wasn't too bad. Um, smooth paddle in, you know, I, I think I haven't paddled in a long time. So it's one of those things where it's like, you forget how hard it is, uh, to paddle, especially whenever you got some wind, which I had a little bit of wind yesterday. So that was, um, that was a nice, uh, <laughs> slap in the face for an introduction into, uh, in, in, into kayaking in and out of places. I think what I realized is that, you know, I'm probably going to want some type of um, small trolling motor or something like that for certain places where I'm getting getting in and out, depending on how far I have to paddle. If it's a small, if it's a short paddle, it's not a big deal. Um, but if there's wind and stuff like that, you know, it's one of those things where I think, you know, a small, um, you know, trolling motor might be in order just to kind of get myself in and out without, you know, breaking a sweat or whatever the uh, or whatever the case is particularly if it's a, if it's a long paddle in somewhere. So went out and did that yesterday, um, put two cameras up, um, one spot I, I think really is a bed to food kind of play. Um, and, uh, so I hung a camera there. The good news was we got a little bit of rain, uh, the day before I think I went into hang, hang these cameras. So I was able to see tracks and kind of verify, uh, that there were in fact deer there that set up camera set up. I'm a little less confident in than I am the second one. Um, the reason being is that you know, they're on their way to food and I can see where the trails are and stuff like that, but it's really, really thick in there and they really could go in a, in a couple of different ways to get to where like the primary food source is. So it's one of those cameras I'm going to probably have to go back out and check in like three, maybe four weeks, you know, definitely by mid July and go make sure it's actually set up where it needs to be set up the way I'm not missing, missing inventory. Um, but I do think I will get deer on, on camera there, just a matter of whether or not I'm in the, in the prime spot or not. So we'll head out in about a month and check that out make sure I'm not, uh, that I didn't, that I don't have a bad setup. Jumped back in the kayak, paddled over, uh, to the second location. And both these areas I scouted this past winter, um, and, and saw some good sign, but the one that I, I paddled into the second one I paddled into, you know, in the winter, I just kind of came in and I, uh, I'm in the process, I think, of putting a video together with this stuff. Um, but there were just a bunch of scrapes in this one area, like a ton up against side cover, primary scrape area, just like classic where you would want to where you'd want to hunt. 
And so that got me pretty excited. I did find some rubs. I found some additional scrapes that were back in the timber. Um, but this primary scrape area was classic up against side cover. And, you know, it, it, it's I'm going to guess it's not far from bedding. And that was my assumption whenever I got in there this past winter and kind of looked around and saw the sign that was laid down and just kind of how the, not the terrain, there's not like big terrain changes, but how the habitat kind of laid out and where the transition lines were and stuff like that. So when I, when I kayaked in this past weekend, I got in and as soon as I got out of the water, I maybe walked 10 feet up onto uh, dry land and I jumped a deer that was bedded there. Um, so that's something to kind of think about and, re- you know, and remember as I get closer into fall, um, are they going to be bedded that close to the edge then? I mean, it was really hot when I walked in on Saturday. So are they bedded close to the water? Cause it's maybe just a little cooler. Is that going to remain, is that summer, you know, type of bedding that's happening right there? Or is that going to be year round bedding? I think I got my answer when I got further in, I headed toward, um, I wasn't hundred percent sure where I was going to hang the camera in all honesty. I knew there were two main kind of ways that they were getting into this particular area where there were all these scrapes and, you know, you might be thinking, well, scrapes, you know, it's not, you know, it's early to be hanging over scrapes and stuff like that. And I, I agree in, in most cases, but you know, if it's, if those scrapes are along heavily traveled areas and this place does not have a primary food destination where it's going to be like bed to food. And so playing that game isn't going to really work in this area. And so my thinking was, was like, well, let's see how often they're using this, what I thought to be like the main travel, uh, you know, route in and out of this particular area where there were scrapes. And let's see if it's being used even during the summer, even if it, to a lesser degree, let's see what the traffic looks like. Cause as far as I could tell, it's probably the best spot I have to even just inventory the bucks or deer in general that are going to be in that area. So as I walked up in, I saw a scrape and I was like, you know, and, and I know deer will keep certain scrapes open and licking branches and will use them throughout the course of the year because they don't stop communicating, you know, after, after ruts over, they just do it a lot less than they do during, during a rut. There's not as much communication going on during the other times of the year. So I walked in and I saw like a, a small scrape and I was like, oh, I was like, that's, that's kind of cool. You know, I was like, I, I don't know that I've seen that very often, um, you know, just in the areas that I, that I hunt, um, and so I kind of kept walking up toward where I thought that that kind of crossing was or the, where the where the main entrance and exit of that general area was going to be. And the primary scrape area is still being tended. Now, not heavy like it would be during rut, but there were four scrapes that were still open and licking branches that were still getting used, um, which I was pretty excited about. No, when I say still open, you know, everything in that area, I mean, this is low lying near water. So everything's greened up and tall. And there are definitive areas, and I put it on my Instagram stories, where it's still down to the dirt. And in one of them, in fact, I saw a uh, I saw a track. And so there are deer still using that. Now, to what magnitude and, and to what frequency, I don't know. But so what I ended up doing was I found uh, a tree, and I hang all my Exodus trail cameras high. You know, when I'm on public, um, you know, I, I, use, I take a stick along with me, and I, I get on top of the stick, and so I'm hanging it probably – nine, maybe 10 feet off the ground. And so I found a tree that was kind of perfectly positioned where I could kind of watch two of those licking branches. But the way it's angled is that I'm getting, there's two, basically two entrances into this particular area. There's one that's coming from like the top side of the property. And there's one coming from what I think is, if I'm remembering correctly, the east, or I'll just call it the the right for, for purposes of this conversation. Um, and so, and it kind of pinches down into this one place, like both those kind of entrances kind of come to one point 
and that's exactly where those those scrapes are sitting. And so I positioned the camera to where I could watch those licking branches, and I could also see those two main kind of entrance points to see what is coming in and and from where they're coming and from where they're coming from. So I was pretty excited about that because that might be one of those things. Like I'll definitely go back because these are both you know new properties or new pieces. Um, I'll definitely go back in like a month just to check it to make sure that the camera's positioned correctly and am I getting inventory or not. Um, and if I am, that is a camera that will be set it and let it, and I will not go back and check that one until probably until I get a decent wind to maybe go in and hunt it in in early-ish September. I might even stay out all of September and probably and maybe not even go in and touch it until you know um, you know until October until October hits because I know that that's going to be if there's if there's licking bridges being used now, it's definitely going to be in play whenever we get into into October. So it would have to be the exact right kind of setup in September for me to use it. Um, and I may just leave it alone and, and wait till October when I think it'll be more prime. It might even be a candidate when I go back in there to swap out for a, um, for a cell camera, because I, I feel like that spot is going to be pretty good. And I would like to stay out and not booger it up as much as possible. Um, and anyone who's tr- going to try to hunt it, like the thing was, is actually after I hung that camera, I jumped a second deer that was bedded just off the edge, uh, back in like where I thought bedding cover would be. And, and that's where the second deer jumped. Um, so I think all signs are pointing to, uh, to, to good things on that, on that particular piece of property. The, the other cool thing about it is, is that I don't think anybody, even if they wanted to go in and hunt, it could really booger it up because it's so thick to the east and the west and even the north of it, the only way to get in and and be somewhat undetected is to come in from the water. You know, if, if you want to hunt it by walking in, you're going to have to hunt the the extreme edges because that's how I found the spot. I walked the entire piece, um, the the north side of it all the way down to the, the the water's edge and then the eastern and I came in through the east and all the way to the western end of it. So, the only way you're going to be able to hunt that if you're going to walk in is you're going to have to be on the very, very outskirts of where I think the like the action is actually going to be. And I have a feeling like you're probably going to see a lot of young deer, um, maybe some does, and by and large probably going to be dark deered. Um, I, think it, I think outside of that particular bedding area is going to be really hard to hunt because I don't have a really great sense as I sit here today uh, as to what their bed-to-food pattern would be there and where they would be going and where they'd be coming from. So I know where they're bedded and that's kind of the, the ultimate, right? Is like, if you, if you know where they're bedded, then you have a chance to kill them. Um, cause then you're not depending on them going from point A to point B and trying to understand what their point B is. And you have a general assumption of what point A, the bedding would be. I definitively know now that this is where their, their core bet, their core bedding area is, um, based on the sign and based on, you know, kicking deer out of there yesterday in, in multiple locations. So feeling pretty good about that spot, excited about that, you know, makes me even look forward to the season that, that much, uh, that much more. But the other part of the season, of course, is going to be me doing some traveling as I've mentioned before. And so the trailer, uh, the, 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 the weekly trailer update didn't get a lot done to it this week, uh, kind of spent this week, you know, I'm at the point in it, in the build, where I'm having to make some pretty, um, having to make some decisions that are going to determine how things are going to kind of lay out. So, and there are also things I probably need to, when I install something, it needs to go in all at once and not in like, you know, a couple of days or whatever. So I've really kind of spent this week figuring out, you know, what, um, you know, what 
you know, heating unit I'm going to use, order that, what, you know, power situation I'm going to have, you know, I know I've mentioned it's going to be solar. And so figuring out what that's going to be. So where I ultimately landed was for, for heat, I ended up landing on a Dickinson Marine, um, uh, 9,000. It's a, it's a propane heating unit that's vented. It'll be vented through the ceiling. It's used a lot in boat cabins. Uh, um, and, uh, and, and from what I understand and from what I've read, it's really, um, you know, kind of a top notch heater and will you know, provide a nice dry heat for, for, <clears throat> you know, for, for hunts. So, you know, it's probably a little bit more power than I need for the setup that I have. Um, but it's one of those things it's, it's of course, if I decide to move into something a little bigger or, or do, do this again with a larger trailer, it's like, I can take it out and move it. So that's the heating situation. Uh, I figured out how I'm going to run my propane lines and all that stuff. So all those things have been ordered and just waiting for it to come in so I can start piecing that together. And then the other critical part was really the power aspect of it. And so I've been looking at like every solar generator known to man and trying to figure out what the best route was going to be, what the best value play was going to be as far as like what you're, I'm going to spend versus, you know, the Watts, you know, the watt hours I'm going to get and stuff like that. And then also thinking about the recharge capacity of it, it's because I'm going to be recharging from solar whenever I'm out on these trips. Um, you know, what is the, it's efficiency to take charge from solar and, um, you know, depending on how much I depleted in a day, how long is it taking me to recoup that? So where I ultimately landed was, and I'll get more into this and there'll be some videos about it hopefully here at some point, but is a blue Eddy. Um, I think it's how you say it. Um, solar, uh, solar generator, uh, 1500 watt. And the reason I went with that was because, cause I looked at a bunch of them. I looked at like the, um, you know, the, of course the goal zero, you know, um, that's made by Yeti. Uh, I checked those out, the thousand watt and the 1400 watt, some of the reviews on it were, eh, you know, and so I wasn't super stoked on it. It seemed like it had a really long recharge time and you had to get the pricier version, um, to get like the, the charge controller that gets you a little bit more, uh, of an efficient charge coming, coming from, uh, coming from solar. And then there were two other, um, there were, there were two other ones. Uh, I can't remember the name of, of, of these two, but there were two other, two other versions or two other brands that I looked at that were around a thousand Watts. And I just felt with the blue Eddie, like the reviews that it had, um, you know, there's a few downsides to it and, you know, I, I can do this in a video, but you know, you're looking at like peak watt usage. So it's like, how much can it give you in short spurts without, you know, clipping or whatever, or without tripping it. Um, it, it's on the lower end of that, but I'm not using this to run power tools. I'm using it to, you know, charge batteries and just have like some, you know, power while I'm, while I'm out, you know, doing these travel hunts and stuff like that. So the peak, you know, availability of power to me wasn't as important as the amount of power I would have long-term. And so that's why I went with them because I'll get 1500 Watts versus a thousand. And so I'm less concerned than with how efficiently I'm going to charge or how quickly I can recharge from solar. Cause I'll never really be depleting the entire battery. The other thing is that it comes with the charge controller as well. So it actually gives me an efficient charge. So I'm getting best of both worlds of what my specific need is, which is long-term power. Cause I'm not going to have power hookups a lot of times and then an efficient charge to replace whatever I, whatever I use. Cause I'm not going to be traveling during the time of year where I'm getting optimum sun. Um, and things of that nature. So I'm already going to be behind the eight ball in, in terms of the amount of hours of sunlight that I'll have available to recharge, uh, recharge the system. So that happened this week. Um, so looking forward to getting all that stuff in as far as solar panels go, I haven't hundred percent kind of nailed that down, but I'm think I'm looking at the Renogy. I think that's how you say it. Uh, probably either one 100 and I think it's 175 watt panel or two 100 watt panels. I haven't hundred percent landed on, on that yet. So 
uh, that'll be uh, that'll be the kind of the next the next phase. The other cool thing that happened this week, we'll get back on the hunting tip here, is it was a good mail week this week. I got a lot of cool stuff. Um, was I got a chance to um, spend some time in the backyard in the Phantom Saddle, um, and I'd been looking forward to you know because I've talked to Greg and I've had an opportunity to kind of. Uh, you know, learn about it a little bit and talk to some buddies who have been using it. Some of the guys on the tethered team that have been using it and stuff like that on their, um, you know, the, who, who work for tethered, um, and, uh, got my saddle in and had a chance to, uh, you know, get into a tree and, and play with it. And, you know, they make killer products. And so I had no doubt whenever I was hearing how comfortable it was and was talking to some buddies of mine that had sat in it and some, you know, of course the guys that work for tethered that are, um, friends of mine that I was talking to them about it and, you know, looking forward to getting mine to kind of get into the tree and checking it out. Um, but the thing was, I was like, you're always a little nervous, you know, whenever, um, you know, for me at least when there's a piece of gear that you rely on so much and there's a new version that comes out and that you're going to, that you're going to use because, you know, I've, you know, I've been hunting out of the mana saddle for two years now and I have that thing dialed in, um, to where I'm super comfortable in it now. And I'll be honest, it's like, you know, that first year, it, t- it does take a little time to get it dialed in. Like you got to, especially if you're new to saddle hunting, it's like, you got to figure out, you know, what tether height's correct. And then, you know, with the Manus, you have a specific bridge length that it comes with. And so your tether height really does matter because that is really where you're going to start to get your comfort and going to create the angles of your bridge and stuff like that. Um, and so I'd over the course of the past two years, and really it was like toward the end of the first year hunting out of it. I really kind of had it dialed into where last year, man, like my comfort was like, I was good, you know? And so the idea of switching to a different saddle was just gave me a little trepidation. Cause I was like, man, I've got this thing dialed in. Do I want to make a, do I want to make a switch? And so I got it, hopped out into a tree, uh, this week and shot out of it for like 30, 45 minutes. Um, man, <clears throat> I'm, I'm not shitting you. It's like, it took me better part of the first season to get my comfort dialed in with my manis. Um, this thing is made, it is idiot proof for comfort. Like you put it on, you, you hook into it and I could really tell because I've hunted out of mine so often that as soon as I put it on and sat in it, I could tell that like, yeah, this it's already more comfortable. Like there was no moving fabric around trying to get it in the right spot or anything like that. There was no, the, the utility bridge is, is killer. I actually still use mine close to like the, it's optimum, it's optimum length or it's at, at its full length length. Uh, the comfort channels that are on the, on the loops, like for me, whenever I got into it, it just naturally snapped into the right comfort channel, which was going to be the most comfortable for me. Like I moved it around to figure out like where I liked it. And it just seems to fall into the place that makes the most sense to where like the, where it, it, it naturally should land. And it, and it has a little bit more, I don't want to say you know, rigidness to it, but it's cupped kind of to where it kind of just wraps around the bottom side of your legs, uh, and rear end. And just, it makes a natural, uh, the thing was, is like, even in the, in, in the manus, it's like, I was always more comfortable standing and I'm a, I'm a leaner, not a sitter, but, and because sitting for me was probably the least comfortable position overall. Um, but with this, I sat down in it for a little while and it's, I'm as comfortable, uh, sitting as I am leaning. So I actually put on the ghillie, uh, ghillie jacket as well and put some additional fabric on me just to kind of see how it would, how it would feel as I started putting some additional clothing on and stuff like that and fit like a glove. and was awesome. So if you're looking at saddles for this, for this season and you're thinking of getting into one, one, it's a great time to do it that we have some time to play with it. Uh, but two, <clears throat> you know, 
I would I would highly recommend you check out the Phantom because I think if you're concerned at all about comfort, um, I think hands down it's gonna be it's gonna be the way you're gonna want to go. So with that, uh, I would definitely check that out. But today I will go ahead and get kicking into today's show. I've I've uh, spent enough time here, kind of giving you guys the download of my past week and what's going on in the world of the the Truth from the Stand podcast or the Truth from the Stand life, if you will. Uh, I've got a cool show for you today. Uh, my buddy Tony Peterson uh, is has joined me today. You probably know him from his uh, Hunt for Real podcast. He has a, a, a bird dog podcast as well. He's been an outdoor writer for years across a bunch of different publications. Writes frequently uh, for Meat Eater Inc. Uh, right now as well. Uh, Tony's well known for being a travel hunter, DIY hunter, public land hunter, um, and kills good deer. Um, just about anywhere he goes and is passionate about it. Um, I had the opportunity to join him on his hunt for real podcast a few months ago, uh, over the winter or right after the season closed, probably like December ish, I think. Um, and just really hit it off with him. Super cool guy. Um, we're very much, you know, have a similar mindset as to how we like to hunt the types of things we look for in a hunt and just how we feel and think about the outdoors in general. And so I wanted to have him on the show cause I think he always has a really good perspective of things as a very accomplished, um, uh, uh, public land, uh, DIY kind of out of state hunter and just always enjoy his co- uh, conversations with him. So I wanted to have him on. So, uh, hope you guys dig it. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today I have a gentleman on who I've wanted to have one for a while. He hosts the hunt for real podcast, the sporting dog talk podcast. He's a photographer, outdoor writer, for more than a dozen different national publications, you've either seen him, heard him, or have read him in the past, unless you're living under, under an outdoor rock. He is none other than uh, my buddy, uh, Mr. Tony Peterson. What's going on, man? Uh, not much, man. I appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you. A uh, couple months ago, I was on your uh, show, and it, 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 was, uh, it was so much fun. I figured we needed to do it again here on this, uh, on this shit show. <laughs> well, well we'll see what we can make of it buddy <laughs> right exactly man so uh the last time we talked man we were uh we were in a much different world it was actually a normal world so what uh what have you been up to since man you a little turkey chasing a little out little little bird hunting a uh, little turkey chasing yeah you know we just kind of wrapped up the season and you know everything changed i don't you know i use turkey hunting as kind of a whitetail scouting mission a lot of times and a lot of that went away this yeah. year. And so we ended up scraping together a pretty good season here at home. And then, uh, I had a buddy who I was talking to one day in early May and I was like, man, I got to just go somewhere. And we started looking into South Dakota and they didn't really have much of a lockdown there. You know, they kept things pretty open and our, uh, you know, shelter at home stuff was over. And so we went out there and I'll tell you what, man, you know, we went and camped on public land and we bow hunted birds out there, had an absolute blast and it felt it was like a tangible weight was off your shoulders, just doing something like that, not thinking about this COVID BS and just being out in your element. And it kind of made me realize how much I, I missed it, you know, and it seems intuitive like, yeah, you're, of course you're going to miss that stuff, but to get out there and do it, it was just such a relief, buddy. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. It was, I got a little bit of chasing in, in here. I always say, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm very much a novice Turkey hunter. It's, I I basically use it as an excuse to go scout. And Mm -hmm. this time of year for a lot of us, as you, you're probably no different. The honey do list is thick and heavy this time of year, Mm -hmm. usually. So (laughs) a lot of the weekends are that. And so I'll get out and chase some birds once, uh, once in a while. Had a good session this year. Had a couple birds that I got to work. Didn't fill any tags. We still actually have, as you and I are talking here, we have one more 
roughly a week left. I have probably like four yep. more days in the season. So I'm going to probably try to get out a morning or two before work. But you're you're right, man. It was um, especially when I went back to the family farm because I, I typically don't hunt the family farm very often anymore. Um, used to hunt it a fair amount during deer season, but kind of stopped doing that just for a lot of folks back there hunting it. And I just, I like room, room to roam like you do, you know? And, mm-hmm. then, and so, um, so my father-in-law is a little dis- disappointed that I don't go back there very often anymore. And so I was like, Hey, why don't we start doing maybe a Turkey camp or something like that? I don't mind coming back here and doing that. Cause I'm not as obsessive about Turkey hunting as I am whitetail hunting. So I can actually enjoy myself, maybe have a beer or two or whatever, you know? Yep. Um, I don't know. And it was just something walking through like nostalgic walking through this old alfalfa field to get to this back corner where I, I know where the birds like to roost that one Saturday morning. It was just like, it just felt like for a couple hours that day that none of the crazy stuff that had been going on in the world existed anymore, which was a nice reprieve, you know? Yeah. It, dude, I'll tell you what it's, you, you really notice that stuff in times like these with, you know, all the uncertainty and it's, you know, I've felt it a few years because uh, some of the places I go, whether I'm elk hunting or, you know, one of the places I hunt in Nebraska, you don't get cell phone reception. Yeah. And so you've got to work to get a signal. And so, you know, you might go sit for whitetails all day long and not have, you know, your phone is a paperweight. Yeah. And it, it's it sounds terrible. It probably, you know, like there's probably kids out there. They're like, I, I wouldn't do that. But when you sit there and you don't have that option, I just I love it more and more now to just be able to check out. Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely a requirement. Had a nice four day weekend over the Memorial day holiday. And there was one day, I forget what I was even doing the one day, but there was one day where I literally put my phone down and walked away from it for like hours, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was just like, and I was thinking to myself at the time, I was like, man, this is what it was like whenever I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, if you called somebody, it was like, you called their house phone. If they weren't home, you didn't talk to them. You know, if you were out traveling around or whatever, you called them from a pay phone, you know? Yep. And just being so connected anymore. It's like, it's a blessing and it's a curse. You know, I, the blessing part of it is, is being able to work remote so I can take a trip to go hunt somewhere and catch a hunt in the morning, work during the day, get out for the evening or whatever, you know, which is nice. But I wonder sometimes if I don't pay for it tenfold by being connected all the times that I'm not out utilizing it that way. Yeah. Yeah. You, do you think I, I've been thinking about this lately, you know, because I always try to think, OK, like what's what's the real positives, you know, and being able to scout online is huge. I mean, right. it's just it's so huge and so beneficial, you know, Hey, can I get a license here? You can Google it. And five seconds later, you have an answer. And I almost am wondering, like, do we have too much information about this stuff now? Like are are people, you know, like they'll, they'll ask me about planning trips and they've already done so much research. I feel like they're, they're kind of forgetting, like, you just kind of got to get out in the woods and walk around sometimes. Like yeah. there's, there's another part to this that's, you know, it's kind of like what trail cameras did to us as far as scouting. Like it got really easy not to do boots on the ground scouting because you could hang a camera, but we all know you need it all. Yeah. And so I just, I just wonder if there's like almost too much of a reliance on some of this stuff now. And we're kind of forgetting the basics. No, I would a hundred percent agree with you, man. Like I, I feel like I even felt myself starting to rely on it too much. Um, and I made a kind of change last year, um, where I would rely on it to kind of get a very high level view of things. There's certain guys, you know, like a, like a Dan Enfault, for example, like he's really, really good with topo to where like he can look at something and he's been hunting buck betting for so long. He can say on this piece, I've never been into, these are the five points I'm going to go check for buck betting. And if they're not there, I'm going to move on to the next, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm not that slick at it. So I kind of have to look at it and kind of study it a little bit. But then it's always I try to put it away and then just kind of go out and seek and see what I'm yep. see what I'm going to find. Right. Because 
I feel like you're right. I feel like we're getting them further and further away from like the real, I think hunting, there's a couple parts. I think there's one, like the, there's the, the, the chase part of it, which we all love. I think there's the other part of like, just like getting lost a little bit and kind of reconnecting with your primal inner self. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you can't do that whenever you're staring at a, at a man-made computer screen. You know, yep. and so for me, it's like going out and finding new places and just kind of exploring and see what's over the next what's over the next hump for me is as important as what I'm looking at whenever I'm using, you know, Onyx or Google Maps or, you know, whatever, whatever the case is. I think I think we often use it as a as a crutch too. it. Oftentimes I see people making decisions in a way that where it's like they don't want to go do that thing. And so they'll look at the map and be like, well, the map tells me that it's like, it's probably not worth checking that out. You know what I mean? So now I'm not going to go do it, you know, versus, you know, it almost kind of gives you an excuse a little bit to where it's like, I've started trying to talk to guys. I had a couple guys on the podcast, you know, more talking about like ground hunting. Cause to me, that is partially a lost art too, you know, is hunting from the Mm -hmm. ground with a bow. Um, that's something I want to do a lot more of this year. And then the other part is tracking. I had a guy on who's like, that's the only way he hunts is tracking. And I've yep. played around with it when I was a kid and stuff like that. Like I've not done it seriously in, in years. Um, and mm-hmm. not that I could do it with any type of precision necessarily, but I think getting back to those things and like, in that approach, it, it forces you to get out of the, out of the, you know, the macro or the micro view, I guess, and look more at mm-hmm. the macro view. Cause you're trying to pick up all the nuance and that's what that kind of approach is kind of about and that's what i appreciate about it so i'm curious to think man do you think kind of the same thing like getting back to that like scouting tracking picking up the nuance is like needs to be more important or more focused uh i do i mean i you know it's it's always interesting to me you know you bring up infault and his buck betting thing and listen like i'm not taking anything away from him the guy's done incredible stuff but i'm i, I always look at that kind of like that's how i hunt this is, this is my thing and it's what I do. And that's like, it's just not my nature. And so I always look at that and I go, man, I, I can't, it's almost unrelatable to me to be so reliant on one strategy. And there are a lot of people out there where that like works for them. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I, it's not my thing. And so I'm always like, yeah, you should probably mess around tracking. Like you should right. sit on the ground in some spots. You should get in trees in a saddle and in a tree stand and you should, you should do all this stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we started this talking about turkey hunting and I'll tell you what I, what I see in the, in the whitetail world right now, it's kind of interesting is you see these people, a lot of people who are just, I'm just whitetails. That's what I do. That's what I scout. That's what I hunt. And, you know, they, I have no time for anything else. And I keep thinking about all these places I find and these things I learn when I'm like grouse hunting with my dog or I'm pheasant hunting or I'm turkey hunting someplace. And I just go, man, I don't know if enough, I don't know if a lot of people have that like single minded kind of terminator focus just to get out there and scout and scout and scout and scout. And I probably don't, which is why I like to get out and do a lot of different stuff. And I'm telling you, like it, it really benefits me to go woodcock hunt some random public land, you know, not every time, right? but it, it it's an excuse to burn a lot of miles and get into new places that I wouldn't just go into to scout deer, you know, if that, if yeah. that makes sense. So I'm kind of like a, a, dre- a generalist in that sense. Like I like the idea of embracing a whole bunch of different styles and tactics and, and just trying to be a little bit more well-rounded if you, if you can get away with it. Right. No, I, I feel like 
as I've, I'll say as I've gotten older and maybe as I've experienced more and seen, you know, different things or whatever this year, I've started, I've really kind of dedicated to what I've kind of referred to. I'm a big football guy too. Right. And so like my favorite mm-hmm. defenses are like three, four defenses because you can run them and you know, they're so multiple just based on like your formation and like the personnel packages you can use. Right. And, and so I kind of look at deer hunting for me in a similar way where I'm like, you know, the, the way to be the way for me to be as successful as successful as I want to be is I have to be able to be multiple and be able to adapt and be successful or at least give myself a sporting chance, no matter what the setup calls for. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, whether that's walking into a swamp where there's not a tree to tree to be in, you know, and know that like, this is where I need to be. I need to hunt it from the ground and be able to go. I'm confident enough to set up, you know, on the ground here and play the wing correctly and my approach, my access was right and be able to give myself an opportunity, right? Yep. Just as much as being able to walk into a place and saying, Hey, that's the right tree I need to be in. Cause I'm going to have a 15 yard shot right to here. Right. Yep. And it's all those things that like, you know, water access, another big thing I was working on this year. Like I'm focusing on like water access and ground hunting because I know water access is a nice barrier for folks and they won't cross it if they can avoid it. Right. And so that's a place mm-hmm. where I can probably go and get some, you know, undisturbed public land to hunt. And so it's just all those things I'm trying to kind of wrap into just to become a better hunter. But, but you're right, man. It's, you know, turkey hunting. I love getting out and doing it just because I enjoy the springtime. Um, I do enjoy going out and goose hunting, duck hunting. And those are opportunities where I go and I see different things. And I also meet new people and then I start getting intel from them about other places I haven't thought about. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like I might be sitting in a goose blind with someone one day and we're talking about deer hunting. I'm like, oh, where do you hunt? He's like, oh, I hunt this piece of public over here. And I'd be like, well, I've not looked at that yet. And he's like, oh, man, there were a couple really big – there's nobody over there. And I'm like, ding, ding, ding. You know what I mean? Yep. So then, you know, that, that that winter, it's like I'm headed over there checking it out. Yep. Yeah, dude. It uh, Upland hunting, waterfall hunting too, but upland hunting just – it takes you to places you're not supposed to deer hunt where deer live, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. You know what I mean? You just get – we, 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 we hit it pretty hard in the late season and we jump so many good bucks on public land and you just go, these dudes are here cause it was just gun season a little bit ago and they're hiding out and they have these places and there's, you know, a lot of times there aren't a ton of good setups there, but there might be like a lone cottonwood or a little tree line or something. There, there's something you could make happen on these deer and they're there cause nobody's trying. Right. And it just opens your eyes to this, this whole other world of, you know, especially when you're talking about public land hunting, because it's, you know, as much, as long as you have a bunch of land home, you go out there, if you're do if you, if you're out there a lot and it can just really open up some opportunities for you. Yeah. It's, you know, I started kind of really thinking about, you know, hunt from the ground and stuff like that. I was watching, um, the guys from whitetail adrenaline, you know, and they're crazy ground and pound, super aggressive, um, and I was just watching them whenever they were hunting in Kansas and Kansas is on my list, uh, probably next year, I'm going to try to get out to Kansas. And I was like, man, I was like, if I don't start to put ground hunting into my repertoire in a serious kind of way, I was like, I'm going to be real limited when I start to head out towards plain States. You know, I was like, I'm going to, mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to probably kick myself in a rear end for traveling that far, buying that tag and then b- being limited to only being uncomfortable getting into a tree. And so mm-hmm. that was really what started making me make the change. And then once I started thinking about it, as I was doing my winter scouting or turkey hunting this year, and I'm walking through areas, I'm going, man, there's a great ground setup. 
Like, yep. oh man, there's a ton of deer sign here. Where would anyone get into a tree? Well, they can't. Man, that's a great ground setup. You know, yep. especially a lot of the swamps and stuff, the edges of the swamps. And I, I got one spot, man, where like the reeds are just completely beaten down. There's two huge rocks that it's the only way in and out. Like they got to come through there. And there is not a single tree big enough to climb to get into of any contraption. And mm-hmm. But you could perch up on that rock up against like the little trees that are there in a ghillie jacket and just blend right in and wait for them to come to that little, that little pinch point, you know? Yep. And so that's what really made me start thinking about, especially in PA with like as much pressure as you get here, like you got to look for those little out of the way spots. Mm-hmm. Well, and as when you, when you start seeing the world that way, cause I've, I've killed, I probably like a third of the bucks I've killed on public land. If I've killed off the ground hmm. and it's just all about if you find that spot that needs to be hunted, you're not you're not saying, well, I can't get into a tree, so it's not huntable. Right. You know, it's it's like the limitation. It's it's why uh, climbing stands have kind of all fallen out of favor. Mm-hmm. You know, you you had to find a tree that worked for it, and it, you know there are applications for them, but you found yourself hunting trees and not hunting deer. <laughs> and you know, you get into a spot and go in like what you talked about there. I see this a lot in the plain states with water holes where there's no trees to hang a stand in, but there might be some cedars on the ground or something like that. And it's, and it might be really limited, but it's also a situation where they're probably not getting hunted there by anyone else. And so you feel kind of stupid. Like I've, I've killed some big bucks on public land, like hiding behind big trees, like too big to hang stands in or just hiding. Like you feel like a kid playing tag or something that's dumb but it it, but it can work you know and you pop up on your knees and shoot or you pop around the tree trunk and so just opening yourself up to those possibilities you know like yeah you're gonna get busted some but you're gonna be hunting where the deer are right and i think that's the most important thing there is like too many people you know and we talked about this a little bit the last time we spoke they they make a plan pre-season and then they try to go out or you know in the off season whatever we want to call it and then they spend their entire fall trying to execute that plan when the deer aren't where they're hunting, you know, yep. and it's like, you can plan as much as you want to plan, but you got, you got a failing plan at that point. Yep. Um, I'm curious, man, I want to talk to you a little bit about ground hunting. So how do you, I guess, walk me through your approach. You know what I mean? Like, how are you, like, are you usually going into like a, for lack of a better way to put it, like, you know, a destination spot, like maybe you have a place in mind that you're, maybe you're familiar with, you know, and so you kind of know how you need to approach it. Like, talk to me a little bit about your access. Cause I'm kind of like, I've heard different approaches. Like one is like, you know, yeah, you're very mindful of the wind. Like you would be anytime approaching like a quote unquote tree location. Right. And then I've also had guys that I've talked to that are maybe a little more on the aggressive side that were like, look, I don't even worry about the wind until I see one. And then at that point, 300 ish yards is when I'll start to cut the wind then to try to make my move, you know, to get close Mm -hmm. enough to try to get an opportunity, whether they're bedded and they're going to come to me or whether I need to close the distance before, before dark or whatever. So what's your approach to, to access and hunting on the ground? Well, you know, what you're talking about there is kind of two different scenarios. You know, if you're talking about seeing one and getting after it, you know, I mean, that's such a fluid situation, but if you're talking about going in, I mean, this, this is one of the main benefits of hunting on the ground, you might find more options for the wind. You know, so, you, so let's, let's say you go into that pond in a plain state and you want to hunt it because it's just bang and there's CRP by it, but there's only three stands, you know, or three stand trees available. Like you're, you're just limited. Like is, is the wind good or not? Right. Or, you know, if you can dive into a clump of cedars somewhere, you can adjust your setup a lot better for the wind and where the most likely approach is. And I just, I've, I've seen it happen a lot. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like turkey hunting, bow hunting turkeys where, 
if you're, if you're using good decoys and you have a good setup and your blinds brushed in, those birds, they'll come out and they'll seem cagey. But the ones that are going to commit, you'll kind of see them like, like it's coming. You see those birds like stop checking out a little bit and then they just commit. And then, you know, I'll, it's just a matter of timing my draw. And it's the same thing with whitetails when they approach certain things like a water hole or if they're on a trail going somewhere in like a staging area, they, there's they're either coming in and they're going to commit and you can just hide and wait for the perfect opportunity to make the whole thing happen at once. Or they're going to walk past you if you're set up right and they're already looking beyond. You know, it's the same thing you do with tree stands and they don't they don't get you as much as you'd think. You know, they might bust you drawing or something, but if they're if they're already in range and they they bust you drawing, it really doesn't matter. Usually, you know, you, you can just put the pin on them and kill them. You right. know, and a lot of people freak out in that situation because they don't have enough experience, but I, I don't really care that much about, I tried not to get busted drawing, but I don't really care that much because they're usually, you know, in, unless they're pretty far away or something, they're not going to get out of the way of it. Right. Um, and it's, especially if you're on the ground, you don't have to think about the shot angle, you know, up, the up and down angle anyway. Right. And so they're just, they're, there are a lot of cool kind of unique opportunities that aren't bound to that elevated saddle or stand, you know, the, the restrictions there. And so I use it a lot. And I'll tell you what I use it a lot for is just observation too. Mm. You know, if, if I'm, especially when you're talking the plain state stuff, but I'll even use it in the big woods in Northern Wisconsin. If you know, there's a ridge line or something I kind of want to watch and I, I'll be able to see down into a Creek bottom or something like that just to kind of fine tune where you want to be. Right. Yeah. I think that's, you know, one of those things where I, that something I need to get better at, which is kind of still hunting my way to wherever I'm going to end up. Right. Because, mm -hmm. and it's being, you know, and that just goes back to being multiple. It's like trying to refine my approach to where my approach also entails hunting, not just getting to where I'm going. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's another, you know, kind of pitfall a lot of bow hunters have is, you know, especially if they're doing all their work in the off season and they know where they want to go hunt in the fall. It's like, they're just, they're going from truck, you know, to where they plan to hunt, you know what I mean? It's just like, and nothing in between. Right. Yep. And then what you see is guys that like get it done with frequency. It's like, well, that might be where they start, but like if they're headed through and they all of a sudden pick up on hot sign, it's like, well, where's this going to take me? You know, then they're yep. off kind of going. And so like the hunt literally starts from the moment they shut their truck door. You know, mm -hmm. and that's something like I have to, and and I know this, but it's like something I have to train myself to like, think about whenever I'm walking through the timber and I just, you know, yep. cause I'm like, well, I want to go check this spot out. And sometimes I will put the blinders on and just try to get there and then I'll start my hunt. Right. Yep. You know, as opposed to hunting my way in, but you know, I mean, using decoys, turkey hunting, right. Makes sense. You know, I've used those in the past this year. I've planning to use a deer decoy, especially in ground setups. Like, so talk to me a little bit about your experience with those. Like, how are you setting those up? Do you find like the 3d ones are like the, the better versions or like the heads up versions that are like more two dimensional, but lightweight and kind of like easy to move around. Like what's your preference and how do you deploy them? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store. 
Have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Man, I am not a big deer decoy guy. Um, I mostly because, you know, the full body decoy thing, that's just tough to do on public land. I mean, it's just a, it's just, you know, it's a little bit more dangerous, but B, just going mobile, carrying one of those things around sucks. And I've tried it. (laughs) And, you know, so that's kind of like when you see somebody using full body or two full body decoys, they're probably not hunting, you know, they're probably not doing a hang and hunt type thing like we are. Right. The the thing that I've had the best luck with, and I've actually killed some bucks on public land with it, is, you know, like a Montana decoy, two-dimensional um, feeding doe decoy. Hmm. I've never had as much luck with head, any kind of decoy with a head up has not worked that well for me. And, it like, take this with a grain of salt because I don't use them a ton, but I have used the, the feeding deer decoys and had really good luck with them because they can't. You know, like they see it, it's kind of a small decoy and it looks relaxed, especially if you put a little teaser tail or something on there and it, it allows, you know, the the does will see it. They'll kind of, kind of get a little wigged out, but they usually accept it. And a lot of times they'll actually feed over to it. But if you see a buck, you can call to him. He doesn't know there's a, not a buck there. He just sees this little deer that looks relaxed. And so, and and you can get away with carrying when they're like two and a half pounds. Right. And so I had, I killed a buck in Nebraska one time. Uh, I'd found this spot. I didn't think you could set up in these pine trees that they were going through. There was kind of a cedar uh, CRP type ridge top there that led down to a creek bottom. And so I was watching these deer cruise and I was just trying to blind call them over. You know, I'd see them and I didn't have a decoy out and they just weren't committing because they usually either had does with them or it was just it, it just wasn't right. It was too far or something. And so I took a decoy and it was I thought, you know, at least if, if I see another buck cruise through and call to them and they'll see a deer here. And the first time it happened, I watched this nice eight pointer go through there and I grunted at him a couple of times and he came over and started raking sumacs the whole way. And he was, he was cautious. Like he's like, I don't know what that deer has on its head, but it doesn't look very big and it's calling to me. And he came into range and I shot him and I was like, man, you know, I'm a mile deep on public. I carried a stand up here and I got away with carrying a decoy. And I felt in that situation, it absolutely worked for me. And so I've, I've run across that a few times where it's just like, if, if you need that bump and it's the right situation, that kind of decoy works for me. Right. Yeah. I'm probably going to be cautious. I think with, with mine or with my deployment, um, I have a small one, like one that wraps up pretty tight. I can throw in a pack really easily or whatever and kind of pull it out if I, if I need it. The only reason I'm you know going to be kind of cautious is a little bit of kind of what you're talking about. It's like, I'm like, the, I think the more and more, you know, I'm, trying to figure out how to say this. I'm trying to be more tuned in like overall to things. And one of the things I've been trying to pay more attention to, like even whenever I've gone back and like looked at, you know, footage that I filmed while I was hunting or looking at trail camera footage or whatever on, on video mode or whatever the case is, as I've started mm-hmm. to try to like watch the body language of the deer and try to start to tell like the different mannerisms that they're displaying at different times. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's one of the things I've been trying to, you know, work on is like, can I tell 
if a deer is on edge 100%, right? Because you, I think our first inclination is to always think they're on edge, right? Because we think that they're yep. kind of like always on freak out mode, right? Which just isn't isn't true. I think it depends on where you're catching them, right? It's like if you're catching them close to their bedroom or whatever, they're probably pretty relaxed, right? If you're catching them yep. in a transition area right before they head out to like a primary food source in the evening, probably a little on edge, you know what I mean? Um, and so I'm trying to get better at recognizing like some of those like tells that they have of like when they start to get alert, when they're, when they're relaxed, when they're going to be aggressive, whatever the case is. And so I don't know that I would deploy a decoy until maybe I had a, a visual and can kind of mm-hmm. get a sense of what that specific buck kind of was. I don't want to say thinking cause you can't tell what they're thinking, but like how he's reacting, you know? Yep. And then if it seems like, well, he looks like he's a little bit aggressive. Maybe he, I saw him raking a tree or whatever. It's like, yep. all right, well, if I can't get him to come in, maybe a little light grunt with a decoy out all of a sudden sets him off or whatever. But if he looks yep. timid, that might not be the right approach. You know what I yep. mean? Well, that, I mean, that's the beauty of a feeding decoy, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't, no deer that's on edge is, also reaching down for some acorns, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, people don't want to use them. Like, you know, we've been so sort of, uh, trained. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like every TV show you see, it's the, the does with the head up or the buck with the head up and, you know, one antler or something like that. And I just, it, just from my personal experience, that was just almost always a train wreck, mm-hmm. but the, the head down the feeding posture it's totally, it, it, it's a totally different response. And it was, I, I kind of discovered it by accident and I, I tested it out for a couple of years on like early season does and bean fields and stuff just to see, because I, you could, I could never get a good reaction out of a doe with a decoy. Mm-hmm. It was always a freaking train wreck. <laughs> and then you put a feeder out there and they walk out and they're cautious, but a lot of times you'd watch them and they'd kind of look and they'd be a little boogery. And then all of a sudden they just oop, accept it. And then it almost inevitably they'd feed closer. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, okay, like it's almost like they're like, I don't know who that is. Right. It's, it's not like that's a fake. They're like, why, how did this other deer get here that I don't know who it is? Cause you think about how tuned in they are to their environment. Like new deer are probably, it's probably like newsworthy in the deer world. Right. right? <laughs> and they're like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm usually the first one here. I didn't smell anybody coming out or anything. And now all of a sudden there's a deer here. Where'd she come from? Right. And then they just accept it. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think the one thing that we don't give them enough credit for is like, I think we over exaggerate their spookiness and then, mm-hmm. and, and, or the thinking that they have this lack of nerve. And then I think we also underestimate their curiosity. Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I had a, I had a buck, two years ago, I guess in this swamp that I was getting into the tree and I just, it was kind of like a shag bark tree and I was making a little bit of noise getting in and it heard like my clothes, like brushing up against the tree. And I assumed that buck thought he heard someone raking a tree lightly. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got set up and in my tree and I kind of like turned and looked, it's like he was standing like 20 yards away, super calm. He was just kind of, his ears were up, but he was just kind of like, Hey, what's going on over here? You know? And he was like looking around, looking around, he didn't see a deer. Then I made a slight noise and then he looked up and saw me and he was like, Oh shit, I'm out of here. You yep. know? But like he literally came in just out of pure curiosity. There was no other reason for him to come in to that spot, yep. you know? Well, and, and you think that, uh, you know, when you're out, you, you, so when you brought up the, the decoy thing, I, I was sitting in, uh, on some public land in South Dakota one time in a kind of like a rainy late October day. And I was on the ground on the edge of a, a public cornfield it was pick cornfield on this walk-in land and i heard something coming through the uh, cedars and my first reaction was like holy crap there's bucks fighting right over there like tick 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 kind mm-hmm. of thing you know and it got closer and i was like they're fighting right they're gonna be right on top <laughs> of me 
it, it was two guys walking through carrying a full body decoy and that full body decoy was banging <laughs> against all the branches. But in my head, I'm not expecting that. Right. I'm thinking, holy crap, there's, there's bucks fighting here. Well, why wouldn't a deer that's out there in comfortable in his place, he hears something and in his head, he's like, he's not like, well, that's some dude climbing a tree, you know, into the tree. Right. He's, he's, he's expecting it to be a sound or coming from something he anticipates to be there. You know? Right. Right. That in this particular little piece of public was it's in between some houses and stuff like that. So that deer is definitely used to like human sounds, cars, like all that stuff. And so, I'm pretty sure like he's not hearing a sound of raking in the backyard by the houses he's living near. You know what I mean? So that raking to him was like, definitely like, Hey, who's in my backyard? You yep. know what I mean? So, yep. well, man, I wanted to ask you, dude, before we get too far gone here, there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on with you. One, we've been talking a lot about, you know, public land and, you know, I, it's well known that you're a big DIY travel hunter and stuff like that. And so I'm always just curious to find, you know, and understand what kind of makes, makes a guy tick that, that enjoys that type of hunting. Right. Because I think some folks will say that we're a little crazy, right? Because it's, there's, it, there's a significant challenge that goes along with it. There's planning that goes along with it. It's not just walking out your back 40 or whatever, which is just, you know, completely fine if that's what you're into, but there's mm -hmm. a lot more that kind of goes into these types of hunts. So I'm, I'm curious, man, from you, from your perspective, what intrigues you about the DIY public land kind of hunt lifestyle? Ah, uh, dude, it's just my wiring. I mean, it, it, I, I always joke to my wife, I'm a pioneer, not a settler. Like I don't, I'm, I'm not, I don't enjoy the same stuff over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I'm not knocking anybody. Like one of my best buddies, I hunt with him all the time. He would go hunt the same food plot and, and kill bucks the same way year to year to year. And he does. And he's super happy with that. Mm -hmm. I'm just, it, it's just not in my wiring. And so I love, I, you know, you mentioned earlier, the room to room. I, I just, I need land. I like, I like figuring out new ground and I just love the freedom of knowing like, man, if you go to Nebraska and you got five or six, seven days, you go to North Dakota or down in Northern Missouri or somewhere, all you got to do is just try to figure out the deer and yeah, you're going to fail a lot, but it's, it's so fun to start with that fresh slate and get out there and scout. And your only goal, you know, you saw this when you were in Iowa, like mm -hmm. your only goal, you're just hunting every day. Yep. You're just trying to figure it out day to day to day. And it's fun to get into that rhythm and you don't, you don't have those excuses to not go. Like you're not at home going, Oh, I should mow the lawn or I should go do this or that. Like this, it's just, you're just there and you're just in it. And it's a wonderful that like the, it's so we, we kind of boil this down, especially in the hunting media is like, okay, this is a means to go kill a buck. Like, no man, this is like an amazing way to spend five or six days of your life. It's, yeah. it's just the experience, you know? Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree with you, man. Like that's, I think that the one thing that I've recognized probably more recently, right, that I probably couldn't put into words until probably this past year, um, which was I, I've always enjoyed going out of state and hunting. And but it wasn't until this past year that I really kind of recognized that it was that I'm there to only hunt like mm -hmm. that is it. You know what I mean? And and like you said, I can't say it any better than it's just an amazing way to spend five, six, seven, two weeks, however much time you have to just go kind of like immerse yourself in it, man. It's like, I think you not only learn so much about the deer and the land that you're hunting during that course of time, but I think you ultimately not to be all hippy dippy, but I think you start to learn a lot about yourself. You know, when mm -hmm. you spend that much time alone with your own thoughts, just kind of thinking about things like you really get an opportunity to put some things in perspective for yourself. Yep. Um, you know, and then the critters on top of it is just kind of the icing on the cake, you know? Yeah. 
And it's just, and I think, I think the other thing too, that I appreciate is we're planning to try to take a vacation, not this summer, obviously, but hopefully next uh, to Iceland. That's like, you know, our family trip or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. I immediately was like, cool, I want to hunt Iceland. Let me see where I can go hunt. My wife was like, she's like, if you want to hunt, we'll go for like two weeks or whatever. You can hunt for like three, four days, whatever, you know, take, take your bow. So I started like researching, trying to figure out like, well, what one, what can I hunt? You know, what's, what are the seasons, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, you take it for granted, but like, there's not at least the bit of research that I did, I may be wrong. So don't quote me on this, but like, I don't think there's public land there. And so when I was looking, like the only things I could find were all like outfitted hunts. And I think caribou was yep. what I was looking at to try to try to hunt. And yep. And it was like something like ten, fifteen thousand dollars or something like that to go do to do a hunt because like I literally just wanted to go buy an over the counter tag and like whatever province I could do it in and then just walk around and go find some public land and go try to find a caribou, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the other thing too that we just take for granted is that like that just doesn't exist in most places. Yep. Well, yeah, and it, man, you want to talk about going off on a tangent? I. When you when you start traveling the world a little bit and start seeing that, yeah, those opportunities aren't available in most places. They just they just aren't. I mean, there there are a few places with some really cool public land like New Zealand and a few others. But really here, we're so freaking lucky. And we still just it's so easy for us to bitch about the opportunities we have. And I, I think about this constantly where, you know, it's such a weird phenomenon when you travel to hunt public land and whether it's deer or pheasants or Anything whatever, else, whatever yeah. you're hunting elk people, the locals, a lot of times will say it's not worth it. Don't our state's not worth it. You know, some of them are trying to keep you out, but some people genuinely believe, you know, I've heard this about Nebraska, like a lot where, Oh, the rifle hunters kill off all the big ones and good luck finding a deer bigger than a two and a half year old on public land. And you go, if you don't have that sort of negative bias from being a local there, and we all have it. Like I think about that in some places by my house too. But when you show up somewhere, you realize, man, there, there's awesome opportunities out here. And it's and it's just not it's not like just one place. It's all over. Almost everywhere you travel, you can find pretty decent hunting if you're willing to work and you don't buy into that negative bias. And it's just it's an amazing thing we have here. And I, I you know, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna rant for just a little bit here, but one of the things that I, I I see in this hunting space so much is it's like so easy to go negative or so easy to like kind of shit on somebody or be like, oh, that guy doesn't know what he's doing or this guy's a fraud or something like that. And like we all fall into that. But really, we have the opportunity to do this stuff and make ourselves happy. Like nobody else is going to make us happy with hunting. You know, like if you're not happy because you're not killing big bucks or, you know, your hunting isn't going the way like it's on you most of the time. Like you, you have and it, you have the opportunity to change this stuff. And we have so much opportunity, even if you don't have a whole lot of money, even if you don't have a lot of time, there are things you can do out there to, to, to bring the enjoyment into it in a way that you're just probably not willing to accept yet. Like, cause you want to play the victim or something. And that's crazy with the opportunities we have. It's incredible in this country. Yeah. It's funny. <clears throat> it made me think of, I was out scouting a, a piece of public in Ohio with some buddies of mine. Uh, I think it was February, but one of the places I'm planning to hunt this year. And, um, uh, it's some rough country and it's, you know, it's, it's brutal walking. It's thick, it's nasty, it's steep, you know? Um, and I think we did like 20 miles ish in a day and a half or 26 miles in a day and a half, something like that. Something, some kind of like ridiculous number. Um, and we were just talking about it the one night when we were getting ready to go to bed and it's just saying how a lot of people wouldn't 
you know, put that effort in and like, you know, this, the, it's, it's big woods. So that's not like, you're not going to get run over with deer. You know what I mean? It's one of those mm-hmm. types of places, but like the deer you might see could be, you know, world-class type of thing. Yep. And, uh, which is, which is fine, you know, and, and a lot of people will complain about that, like deer numbers and not seeing deer. And, you know, last time I hunted it, I sat 10 days and saw three deer in 10 days, you know? And I said to my buddy, I just turned around and looked at him and I said, dude, while everyone else is bitching, I'm winning. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, and that's just kind of my mentality. It's like, while you're standing there complaining about what you don't have, I may have, I may lack the same stuff, but I'm going to figure out a way to make up for it, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of my mentality. Like, you know, whether it's trying to learn to hunt from the ground so I don't blow opportunities that I might otherwise have or doing some of these travel hunts. I know we were texting back and forth. It's like, I'm tired of trying to find a place to stay that's close to where I want to hunt. So I got an old beat up trailer that my grandmother, you know, that my grandmother sold me after my grandpa passed for like 800 bucks. And it's like, and I'm outfitting it basically to be a mobile hunting rig. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm putting yep. a little insulation in it and stuff like that. So I got a place to sleep so I can just go where I want to go. And you know, don't have to pay for hotel rooms or anything like that to stay for the, however long I can keep that thing running, you know? And so it's just all about making do with what you have and being honest with yourself about what you're willing to sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Cause everything costs something. Well, for sure. And you know, I mean, that's, that's one thing that's just kind of always chat my ass about, you know, being in the industry. Yeah. Like I've, I've gotten a lot of free hunts and done some crazy stuff and, you know, I've gotten a lot of free gear but I pay for all my own and, and you know, I do on my own and what you realize is how cheap they really are or mm-hmm. they, they can be, you know, people are out there saying like, you know, like I can't afford to do what you do. And I'm like, yeah, maybe not six States a year, but I bet you can do one. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm positive you could do one and you, but you can't look at it like, well, I, you know, I'm not going there cause I don't know if I'll kill a big one. Like that's the wrong way to look yeah. at it. Like if you go, if you say, you know, we're going to take this trip with me and a couple of my buddies. We're going to butt, work our butts off and camp and do whatever. And hopefully somebody gets one. You'll realize that even if you go and everybody blanks the first year, you're going to plan to go back. Oh, yeah. They, almost, almost a guarantee, you know. And the second year, somebody's going to kill. Yeah. And it's going, to, it's going to change over time. You're going to realize, like, this is totally this is totally doable financially. You can get the time. And you'll realize that even if it's hard and you're probably not going to fill your tag, which is both true it's totally worth it. Yeah. And and it's, and they're not crazy expensive. I think the first, the first out of state, like DIY whitetail hunt I went on, I think I did the whole thing for like 600 bucks tag yep. place to stay food. And that was probably a little on the high side. Like I probably could have cut even more corners if I really wanted to and made it and made it even cheaper. I did a yep. full two week Montana elk hunt. And I think I spent, my tag, well, the tag was a grand. It was a triple tag, right? Yep. But with tag and gas, everything, because I went with a couple other buddies, I think even with the tag, I think I was all in for like $1,700 for the whole trip. Yep. You know what I mean? And it, like, look, and I'm not sneezing at 1700 bucks. you know what I mean? But people think that like doing a two-week out west hunt has to cost just like seven, eight grand, 10 grand, and it doesn't have to. You know what I mean? It's yep. like you can do it with just a little bit over over the cost of the tag. And I... And I think the other thing too is, is when you go out and you do these hunts, man, it changes your perspective on how you hunt when you come back home because, you know, you don't have all the time in the world. So you got to be efficient, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? With your scouting and what you're looking for and stuff like that. And it tunes you in in a different way. Like I credit hunting out of state for helping me become a better hunter than I do almost anything else Yep, because it's forced me to look at things differently and 
be open-minded because what I'm seeing in this state isn't going to match what I see in this state. So I can't yep. use them as like a, like as a one-to-one, I can use it as like a jumping off point, but it's not going to be a one-to-one. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's experience, man. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's so easy when you're at home to kind of buy into the stuff we've been told, you know, whether it's weather moon phase or hunting pressures effects on deer or the lull or all that stuff. But when you go and you got nothing else to do, you know, you go on a late September hunt or a mid October hunt somewhere, you start seeing like a lot, there's like a lot of holes in the dam, man. Like a lot of this stuff doesn't hold water and you, and you realize, you know, I mean, it's, it's just worth being out there. Like there's a lot more deer movement going on. There's a lot less nocturnal stuff than we think. The deer are way less affected by some of this weather, these weather events than we give them credit for. And you realize like time in the woods, like if, if you're, if you're scouting and you know, you're, you're planning around the right conditions and stuff, like you can really make a lot happen when you're not supposed to. And you learn that when you're in a situation where you have nothing to lose. And you kind of, you kind of get that when you go to public land, like I don't advocate, you know, just you know, blindly running across, you know, like you're not Zach Farrenball, right? Right. Like not everybody can do that. Right. But, but at the same time, when you're like, well, I'm just showing up here and I'm going to hike back here, you kind of get a little more cavalier and you're Mm -hmm. like, you know, if I blow them out of here, I'm going home tomorrow. And what you realize is you can get away with a lot of stuff. And you mentioned this way earlier about, you know, how cagey deer are supposed to be versus what they really are. And I'll tell you what, I, I think one of the reasons like a lot of people fall apart on big bucks is we assume you know, they're on top of their game. You make one mistake, they're gone. That might be true. But when you watch them walk through the woods, if they're comfortable, they own that place. Oh, yeah. They're not walking through like a doe with two fawns who's on edge or anything. Like they're walking through like I'm the king. And yeah, you, you know, they bust you moving or they get a whiff of you. The, the game changes in a hurry. But when you watch them and they're comfortable in their element, they're not like these crazy boogery critters that, you know, like I have this sixth sense going on. That's totally total bullshit. Like they are way more calm than people think. It's like we introduce that frenetic pace and that the whole, like, I have to get a shot in right away. And a lot of times we just introduce the thing that makes them go, wait a minute, what's going on here. And when you get enough time around them, you can just, you just get a little better at handling that situation. You just get better shots. Right. I think we do a good job of projecting our own neuroses on the critters that we chase. (laughs) in a lot, in a lot of ways, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like we are on edge so much about it that we assume everything else around us is, is on edge. You know, I think my hunt in Iowa this year was a great example. I mean, there's no reason, you know, on God's green earth that I should have had four different encounters with that deer and missed him twice and him still be as calm as could be. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like he just, to your point, like, I think you said it perfectly. Like, he was in his most comfortable spot and he was the king of the jungle in there. Right. And so it's like, it was going to take, you know, literally getting downwind of me and seeing me at the same time, finally for him to be like, yeah, game's over, buddy. You know, but up until then, it's like most people would have thought that like, man, that deer should have been gone a long time ago, but it's like, no, like he, like it's the right time of year and in the right place. And I think that that's the part that people start to overlook is like always thinking about what time of season is it? how should the deer, what is the, what is driving the deer's ultimate behavior and how much can I get away with because of that? Right. Cause I think mm-hmm. early season they're on bed to food. You intrude their bedroom probably puts them a little on edge, right? You do it during pre rut rut. You intrude like a safe space for them. Probably willing to forgive it a little bit more because their drive, what is driving them biologically has now changed. 
you know, mm-hmm. and so they're not kind of functioning in the, uh, in the same way, but I want to shift gears, man, and talk to you a little bit about, you know, the state you're planning to hunt this year. And then I want to talk a little bit about the seasons and why you pick certain, why you pick certain states. Cause every time I talk to you or hear you talk or read something that you've written, especially when it's regarding whitetails, like I always pick up like different nuggets along the way that I've not thought of before. And so I was like, this is my opportunity to ask these questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind, man, like where are you, what, what are your plans for this year? What are you, what are you planning to do? Uh, man, this is a bad year to have this conversation because there, there's a lot of stuff up in the air, but I, I think tentatively I'm going to go to North Dakota on the opener and hunt whitetails. I didn't draw my any deer tag out there. So I'm going to head to Western North Dakota and I think it's September 4th this year. So I'm going to go out and I'll hunt water, you know, that mm-hmm. time of year. That's, that's all I'll have. You know, there won't be, you know, there'll be some stuff they're browsing on, but they won't where, where I'm at on public land, it'll be either water or they're just passing through. Um, and then, you know, I'll come home, I'll hunt Minnesota, of course. And then I, I think I'm going to go to Nebraska in mid-October because I want to go try to kill a big one on a scrape mm-hmm. in Nebraska. And I've, that's that, like, that probably sounds kind of weird, but I've, I've found this spot several years ago that I've hunted during the rut a few times. And I've killed, I killed the biggest buck of my life there in that, on that property. But I've also found these monster scrapes in the woods at various times that have like three licking branches on them. And I just, it, it made such an impression on me. And I've always had pretty good luck, like October 10th through the 20th hunting scrapes. So I'm like, I just want to go see if those big bastards are coming into that, those community scrapes in the, in the cover that time of year and see if you could just kill a big one on public land on that, you know, and it, like you said earlier, you know, you might walk in and bump into something totally different and I'll t- change everything. Right. But that's kind of my plan right now is to do that. Then I'm going to come home, hunt the big woods in nor- uh, northern Wisconsin and try to kill one, um, you know, staging mm-hmm. kind of pre-rut type of thing. And then I think I'm going to draw Iowa this year. Nice. And so I'll come back and, you know, 10 days in November, I'll go hunt Iowa and do the, you know, do the rut hunt thing there. I, right. I That's kind of, and I, I don't know. I might throw in an elk hunt in there in September. I'm not sure. You know, it just, mm-hmm. I'm kind of, a lot of stuff's kind of up in the air right now. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that Nebraska hunt, man. Cause like, that's one of the places I've looked at, you know, um, for future hunts. Um, what is the hunting like there? Cause I've never, I've only ever driven through it and spent zero time there. And I literally see all cornfields, you know, like I get a sense of like Kansas of like CRP and like some fingers of timber and stuff like that. But like a lot of C- CRP. So I know I'm going to have to be prepared to hunt yeah. from the ground, but when you hit Nebraska, like what's the topography, what's the elevation look like? What's the, what's the landscape look like? Um, it depends where you're at. You know, I, I typically hunt river bottom type stuff, Okay. you know, and, and that, that's the benefit when you're in these ag states, you know, you have the benefit of the stuff that can't be farmed has a better chance of being public. Mm-hmm. And so the cover, you know, they, they might, you know, there might be a river system or a Creek system. The, the best cover might all be public or, you know, there might be a good percentage of the best cover is public cause they can't farm it. And so people kind of look at it and go, oh, you know, there's there's huge areas of sand hills. And, you know, you got the Bessie National Forest in the middle of the state and that and go, you know, you could hide like a sharp tailed grouse in here. You can, of course. But there's also some really awesome timber along creeks and river systems that you can hunt that can provide a really good traditional bed to food, food to bed 
type hunt. It just right. depends where you're at, you know, and there, and there's some reservoirs with the same kind of situation. And, you know, I would say I talk about Nebraska a lot cause I love Nebraska. The secret is definitely out on Nebraska public land. You know, like Nebraska is one of the most, uh, non-resident friendly States out there. They're awesome. And the, the people are awesome. It's, it's my favorite state. Really? It just is. But I see more pressure than I ever have. Hmm. And so it, when I started hunting there, there was a lot of pressure then that was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. There was a lot of pressure, but it was a lot of people hunting very easy to reach stuff. Right now you're starting to see the people who kind of, they'll get back in there mm-hmm. and, and hunt it a little bit differently than, you know, walking 200 yards off the parking area and hanging a stand. And so I, I feel like you kind of got to up your game a little bit. Like the easy ones aren't, aren't as easy anymore, Right. but it, it's still like just a fantastic state. And, you know, they have a September one opener. And so, you know, that's what we did last year and you know, it's hot as hell, but man, it's, can be so good there when you're hunting some of those river bottoms and creek bottoms and stuff like that are there is there any particular kind of like area that you find where you're kind of seeing aggregated sign or where you've historically or traditionally had some of your best setups or best encounters um man it just depends you know the one thing that's it's a little hard to get used to and i don't i don't know if this is just like anecdotal or there's more to this but it sure seems like deer in that state and a couple of those plain states lay down a ton of sign. Hmm. Like when you're walking around and you see scrapes like every 15 yards along tree lines, and I don't know if it's just because the deer are concentrated around the cover or if they actually do lay down more sign. Right. Uh, I, I, I don't know why it is. Like you, if you if you come from you know northern Michigan or you come from PA somewhere and you you hunt big woods or the Adirondacks or something like that. You would you would walk into a lot of these spots and go, holy crap! Like I am on them, but everywhere you go looks like that. Like if you <laughs> right. you know what I mean, and yeah. so it's it's really easy to get lulled. So, but the thing that you kind of got to get past that is just a observation, and you can see a lot in those states. Right. And so you know you can set up over that sign, but it, it you know just do it in such a way so you can see a lot, and then you get clued into what they're doing now. And I I've found places where. You know, there's river crossings that they'll use. I mean, they've used every year I've ever been there, any time of the season. And there's other times where I've hunted places where it's just been on fire one year for some reason and not the next. And part of that is due to some of the private ag fields and stuff that you might be, you know, your deer are either ending up at or starting at depending on the time of day. So right. it just, it just kind of depends. Right. Man, what a, for early season, like what's your, so it sounds like you like Nebraska for, for early season. Sounds like the Dakotas for early season. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, that's a, that's one way to put it. <laughs> and so when you get into like the October kind of time frame, like what are some of your your favorite states to hunt during that during that particular period that are, you know, the DIY kind of out of states, out of state hunts? You know, I go you, you hunt those other states early just because they're the ones that open early. Right. Or you, know, you want to go they, after they just, Velvet or whatever the case is. Yeah. But I mean, there's only so many options. You right. know, there's there's only so many states you can hunt. So you kind of. You almost by necessity are limited to either, you know, Kentucky or some of those Western states. Right. But when I get into October, I, I switch gears completely. I like the big woods stuff. I like staging areas and, you know, scrapes in the woods. And I like getting into, you know, to, to me, when you're, when you're hunting around any kind of agriculture, like by the time October hits, they've been hunted enough on the field edges and stuff where that program, it, most of the places I hunt, they kind of, it kind of just dies. Yeah. So you got to be a, like a staging area kind of hunter anyway. And then when you get into the big wood stuff where you're not really factoring in a whole lot of ag fields because mm-hmm. they just don't exist, then you're just like, you become that kind of elk hunter where you're like, okay, where's the freshest sign? 
And wherever I find it's where I'm going to set up. And I just, I love switching gears to that and, and hunting in the timber. Right. And what about late season, man? Like, what are your, some, like, do you, do, well, let me ask you this way. Do you ever take trips in late season specifically for late season? Or are those usually kind of like Hail Marys where it's like, I've got some free time. It's late season. I got a tag for over here. Let's, let's head out. That's my, let me, t- let me put it this way. When I go hunting in the late season, 99% of the time I have a black lab with me and a shotgun and I'm going for pheasants <laughs> or girls. And it, I say, I, I'm like kind of joking, but kind of not. I, I try, I try to fill my tags. I, I do like hunting late season. I've never in all my life, I've never killed a big one in the late season. And that I, and I have had years where I tried really hard. Right. I have, I, I do enjoy it for, you know, trying to get a doe or if I do have a buck tag left, you know, a lot of times that'll be a Wisconsin thing or, you know, home in Minnesota, or I might travel somewhere for it. Um, but the late season, you know, when you're, when you're a public land hunter, primarily the late season sucks. And I, like I get, you could probably measure my blood pressure when I read one of these articles where, you know, somebody's like the late season's the best time to kill a big buck. I'm like, Oh my God. Like <laughs> on, on what planet, man? Like right. planet winky. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I get it. Like on your place, you know, yeah. or like planet Likoski. Sure. You guys have right. that spot. But if you're, if you're telling somebody like, Oh, you can count on the, uh, you know, the food sources to draw them in, or you can count on that second rut. Like, man, there's only like nine hours of daylight in the late season. And those deer have been pounded for months. Like yeah. it's, and I'm not saying it's impossible. There are guys who are really good at it, who do it. Right. But it, it's just, is it's not my thing. Like I, I've, I've killed a lot of late season deer. I've never killed a big one. And I don't, I, I look forward to it very rarely Right. <laughs> like, yeah. by that time of the season. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to sit in a tree anymore. Like, you know, you, yeah. you kind of burn yourself out, you know, No, you totally do. Like this is one of those years for me where it's like, I got out during late season and I mainly just started scouting during late season because mm-hmm. you know, it was all public. And so I was just literally trying to find where the deer might be, you know? And so it was just mm-hmm. a lot of walking. And I was joking with a buddy of mine. We were, we were talking last week and I was like, I don't know how many hunts in late season this year that I went out and never even set up where it's like, I literally walked from the time I got out of the truck and like just continued to walk and like it got dark and I walked back to the truck. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just yep. like, cause I just didn't find anything good to set up on. Now with that, it's like, I found some killer spots that, that I, I walked by that I was like, man, October, I'm going to have to walk through here and see if there's any sign laying down here, you know, cause I've saw yep. some historical sign or whatever. Um, but I, I think you're right, man. It's like, I, I think if you have a great spot for late season, then you got a great spot for late season, you know, it's like, and if you don't, then it's, then it's really tough. I think the one thing too, that people overlook and don't think about is Don Higgins, great late season hunter has some farms, you know, Don's a, Don's a killer. He kills big deer. But the one thing I learned from him is we were talking about late season specifically. And he was like, what people don't realize he's like, everyone thinks food is king in late season. He's like, and it is to a certain degree. He was like, but people forget that the deer's biology is set up for them to survive with nothing. Whenever like the, the weather turns, he's like, so their mm-hmm. metabolism slows and he's owned deer for years and watched all this happen, not just, you know, in the wild, but like, you know, whenever he had his, his, his deer farm or whatever, and he was like, and their bodies slowed down. He's like, I can put feed out for them. And it's, you know, maybe they'll come to eat it a little bit. If they do, they'll nibble at it and go back and lay down order. Cause they're trying to lay down, save calories, not move unless they have to. And he's like, the only way they get up consistently, he's like, is it's not, they have to feed every night. He's like, it's the nastiest, gnarliest, wettest, coldest, windiest weather you possibly can have is what will drive them to food. He's like, I've seen it time and time again. He's like, that is literally 
the only thing that will move them consistently. He's like, the whole idea of you're going to hunt bed to food in late season, he's like, unless you have the right weather that's going to make them move, he was like, it's it's almost not even worth going out to hunt it. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, and it, it's totally, it totally makes sense. You know, you think about, um, you know, here in Minnesota, we, we get these cold snaps in December where you can go out and you'll drive by a field and you'll look and there'll be deer bedded mm-hmm. all day long in certain places, not moving, even when they could move 25 yards and probably pop some corn cobs. Right. But it makes sense, you know, intuitively it makes sense that they you know, if they sense something big's coming that might shut them down for three or four days or make life a hell of a lot worse, they're going to get their belly full. That's that's interesting. Yeah, because I never thought about it. I mean, I knew that they went into like a a metabolism slowdown to a degree, right? Because I knew bucks slowed down eating, right? You know, as the rut kind of starts to come up, come about, right? They start to deprioritize that and they start laying down scrapes and start moving more. But even like the does and fawns, like it's the same thing. It's just how their, their body's wired to survive. And yeah. once I started thinking about that, I was like, man, I spent a lot of days out in late season where I didn't have a snowball's chance in hell to see anything, you know, <laughs> I was like, you know, unless I just happened to catch some like, you know, happenstance, you know, by luck movement. But, uh, yep. you know, with the, with all your travels, man, you know, is there any state, there's two questions here. What is your most underrated state that you feel just produces like not just big deer, but like great hunts, you know, um, that maybe is underrated. And then two, what are your feelings on Montana whitetail hunting? Well, man, underrated, I I would say maybe Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, as far not for, you know, showing up to kill 170, but I have a for sure because i think everybody in that state hunts Mm -hmm. but lots of deer you know not a ton of predators no winter overkill you know there's they 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 have a lot of deer down there and the public land that i've hunted in a couple different places aside from one spot had a lot of deer on it so you always and you, you know you get a bunch of tags when you buy your license down there so you just have this different feeling like oh man i can shoot two bucks and a bunch of does like I just want to see somebody coming down the trail and it's just fun. And, you know, both, both the times I've spent some serious time down there hunting, I've had really good opportunities at big non-typicals on public land. Hmm. I never sealed the deal on either one. I missed one uh, the last time that broke my heart, but it's, you know, we, we average killing a deer like every, every day or every other day with our bows down there. And, you know, that's does and little bucks and whatever, but it's just a fun place to hunt. There's some big chunks of public land and there's, there's some kind of cool, plainsy prairie type stuff in the western part of the state and then you get more into the hardwoods in the eastern part of the state and it's just a it's just an enjoyable place and you might run into like a, a bonus pig on public land nice and so for for just kind of fun where you don't want to spend a ton of money on a tag and you want to have a lot, of, a lot of opportunities and enjoy yourself it's tough to beat you know it's not it's it's not the place i'd go if you were like hey you got a you know gun to your head you got to kill 150 incher that probably wouldn't be my choice right. obviously but it's, it's pretty fun down there. Right. So what about Montana? How do you feel about Montana whitetails? Cause it's one place that like is intriguing. I'm, so the reason I'm asking is because uh, this year I'm doing Missouri and Ohio, right? And mm-hmm. the Ohio trips, one that I typically always like to do. The Missouri one is actually a film project. So I'm going, I have a camera guy going with, and like, that's going to be filmed. Um, but that hunt was almost going to be a Montana hunt, but I was just a little hesitant to do it only because I'm not as familiar how to f- get into whitetails out there, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew in, you know, Missouri, very similar kind of 
topography and setup, at least the public I'm looking at as to what I hunted in Iowa. So I was like, if I'm going to have someone filming this thing, I need, I want to be somewhere where I have at least familiarity with the area and the general kind of land features and stuff like that. That way I at least hopefully see deer. Um, what are your thoughts on Montana whitetails? I have never hunted Montana. I've hunted where I could see Montana from North Dakota. <laughs> nice. um, I've done a ton of research there and I think, I think Montana would be a wonderful place to go. I think, I think if you think, uh, you know, if you enjoy Ohio and Missouri, you're going to go to Montana and be like, man, these deer are easy. <laughs> I think, you, I, you know, just the sheer visibility and you're, you're, you're talking about river bottom type stuff and you're talking about lower hunter densities it, and it's just Western whitetails, man. They're just, Western whitetails are just easier to hunt in general than Midwestern and Eastern whitetails. They don't get the attention that, you know, our deer do. They just, they just don't. And, you know, out in Pennsylvania, they, those deer get a hell of a lot more attention than the whitetails do in Montana. And so to get in on some of those Creek bottoms and be able to glass some of the alfalfa fields, they're probably going to, uh, I think you, I think you'd have a wonderful time there. And I, I, I just haven't applied there yet Mm -hmm. because I have to drive by so much good whitetail stuff to get there. You you know what I mean? Yeah. And same boat. Yeah. And I'm kind of, I'll hunt them there, um, at some point, but it's just like, man, if you're going to Montana, like, yeah, whitetails are a good reason to go, but there's so many good reasons to go to right. the state, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's just it. That's the part of my struggles. Cause like, if I'm going to go out to out there, I'm like, I'm going to go for two weeks and I'm going to hunt elk. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. you know, if I'm going to make that 39 hour drive, like that's, that's what I'm going to try to kill. You know, yep. um, a buddy of mine recently moved out there in the past. I think he's maybe been there two years now and he was on like a really good deer for out there. It was like 160 some inches. He was playing cat and mouse with on public land. And it's just, you know, he was, he's from New York. So when he got out there, he was like, you just, he's like, you don't believe, you won't believe it. He's like, these deers are huge. He's like, nobody talks about them, you know? Yep. Cause they're almost, I think in some cases they're almost viewed as a nuisance out there. You know, people are like, yeah. eh, white tails, whatever. They're, they're just not, you know, I mean, when you, when you have, you know, the residents in that state can get tags for all kinds of stuff every year. Yeah. And it's just lower on the totem pole. You know, I mean, they just have so many more options. You know, and it, you know, if you're being honest, if you live there and you could go bull hunt elk in September, are you going to go bull hunt whitetails? Like, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> you know, I mean, you might, but it's just a, it's just a different world. And they so they don't get hunted the same way. And, you know, in my experience, at least with Western whitetails outside of Montana, they don't look up as much. They're not thinking somebody's trying to. Right. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, it's on my list. We'll see. We'll see when I, uh, when I finally make it there, man, but we've been going at it for a little over an hour, man. I want to be sensitive to your time, but I have one last, two last questions for you. One's a hunting question. The other one is more of a, uh, what I'll, what I'll call a theoretical question. We'll get, we'll get deep on the last one. Um, sure. So the first one is, man, is I've talked, I've heard you talk about, it. I think we maybe even talked about it when we, when I was on a, a your hunt for real podcast it is, is bad weather hunting, especially when you're on these travel trips, right? Cause so many guys are inclined to like wake up and hear the rain. Right. And they're like, ah, oh, man, it's raining. I'm going to stay in today. You know, it's like I'm on this trip or whatever, or maybe they've been grinding for like five days and it's just a good excuse to stay in or whatever the case yep. is for a mental day or whatever. Like what's your thoughts, especially on these travel hunts of hunting, hunting those bad weather days. I love them. Yeah. I mean, anything that keeps people off of public land is, you know, 
it's good in my opinion. They, I mean, the thing you're battling with all the time is just the pressure. So if there's some kind of weather event that's going to keep people at home, the hunting's going to be better. Right. And you know, this is this is one of my I, I, sort of my beasts with the hunting industry. I got into trouble for this one time. I said this on a different podcast, but if you listen to like the Jury Brothers talk about the perfect conditions to hunt, I'm I'm not saying they're not good hunters. They obviously are, but they're like the scope that they view this through is unpressured deer. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, they're looking at, you know, they have the luxury of saying like, we can wait for the perfect cold front with the perfect moon phase and, you know, go right on down the line and they can go to these deer and know that if they sit out for two weeks, nobody went through there, you know, still hunting with their buddies or nobody went through their bird hunting or whatever. Most of us don't have that luxury And and the deer on public land aren't those deer. And so they're sitting there going, the days with fewer people in the woods are the days that I'm going to move around more. Right. And so, you know, you see this in the early season with the super hot weather, you know, people think, well, if it's 90 degrees, there's going to be no deer moving, man, that's crazy, right. you know, or it's too windy or the rain's coming. I mean, like, man, if you've never sat a bean field in the rain, like you're missing out, right. <laughs> you know, like they're just, I, I honestly don't think deer like laying down in the rain very much. I think they like getting up and moving around. I mean, it's it just, there, there are, there are a lot of excuses not to go. I just don't think you should use weather as one of them. And if you're primarily a public hunter, public land hunter, you should you should take those as an opportunity to go out when other people won't be there and see what's going on out in the woods. Right. I think a couple things there, man. I think one, the whole idea of like if you're a public land hunter, you're probably a normal working Joe like the rest of us. You know, if you got a day off to hunt, go hunt. You yep. know what I mean? Like, don't wait for the perfect conditions. And maybe you don't go to your best spot if, if the wind's wrong or whatever the case is or the, or the area that you want to hunt the most if the wind's not right or whatever the case is. Like, you can be smart about it, right? But but go out and hunt, you know. Yep. Two, and I think you're right. I think we oftentimes give weather a lot more credit. For, I've sat plenty of cold fronts where I didn't see anything. I've sat plenty yep. of warm days where I saw deer. You know what I mean? And so I don't discount weather helping drive some of the decisions that they make. But I don't think that it's ironclad, you know, just as I think, you know, um, hunting warm weather, I think can be just as good as hunting hot weather. If you're in the right spot, a lot of times you're not seeing deer on those cold weather days or warm weather days because you're just not in the right place. You know, you have to think yep. about how they're going to react to that weather and where are they going, where are they going to go? Right. Are they going to sit on a, a barren kind of side of a, a south facing slope in the heat of the day when it's 90? Probably not. They're probably going to try to find like a low spot near water where they've got some shade and some moisture. You know what I mean? Yep. Like that's, so you're just thinking about like, you know, the, you know, uh, the, the setups all over overall, but the last question I wanted to throw to you, man, this is the, um, the theoretical one. So, you know, it's a very simple question, oftentimes complex answer. Right. And I think we probably don't think about it often enough, but why does Tony Peterson hunt? <laughs> uh Perfect reaction. I, that was, well, that was, <laughs> yeah. I, what I was thinking was I've been asked that by my wife about 5 million times. Right. Um, I suspect the answer I get might be different than the one she gets. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so here, here's a, uh, I'll, this is going to be a long winded convoluted answer, but you know, when the, the reasons change, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're eight and you carry in a BB gun around, like you want to kill sparrows, you just want to murder something. Right. And then you turn like, 12, you start deer hunting and you're like, I just want to kill deer. And you go through that phase and you're like, oh, no, I want to kill a bigger one. Or, you know, like I, you start getting into these things and like the phase I'm at 
in my life now different reasons like i just know i have to mm-hmm. like i know i'm a, I'm a crabby bitch if i don't like mm-hmm. i my like it's to the point now where if i don't bow hunt for like a week and the season's over my wife is like please just freaking go hunting like go sit in a tree like you just right. you mentioned that earlier like sometimes you just need to sit out there and decompress a little bit yeah. and kind of shove away some of the life's bs you know i, I love the meat aspect of it like i love that more now than i ever have in my life and i've always loved venison so that's a huge motivator now. Um, I just, I like just the challenge, like the, like doing something of consequence. You know, this is what I'm trying, like I'm trying to get my kids into it mm-hmm. in any way possible. My little girls are eight, you know, and they turkey hunted for the first time this year. And I, a part of the motivation is, you know, it, it's selfish, right? I want them to do what I love, but I also want them in their lives to experience something of consequence. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we have a lot of ways to skate through life. We have it really good in this country where we can, we don't, we don't have to do anything of real consequence and we can get away with watching Netflix every night and going to our jobs. I'm not saying like everyday average life doesn't have consequences, but this is something different. Like you, you're responsible for something. You're trying to kill something. I like that part about it. Cause it's easy to go away from that. And you know, the whole challenge thing and honestly, part of it now for me is just, you know, it's just part of my business. Like this is like I get paid to write about this stuff. I get paid to talk about it. And it's just become it, it was always a huge part of my life. Like I was always drawn to it. And now it's just so much a part of it. Like there's no divorcing me from it. You know, like right. I just I just have to do it. And I, you know, and I don't mean like I don't mean that in a bad way. I want to do it. Right. But it just it is what it is. It's, it's something that I'm always going to do. Right. I think it's interesting, you know, doing something with, with consequence. Like, I think that that's a powerful, powerful statement. Cause you know, when you said, you know, we have it so well here, you know, and I was just thinking, I was like, even in the state that things are in now, we have it better than 99.9% of the world. You know yep. what I mean? Like just for some yep. perspective, right. It's like, we literally are in like t- unprecedented times for our country, maybe outside of you know, the great depression, right. And maybe world war two, you know I mean? As far as like the impact that it has on everybody, like it's touching everybody. Right. Yep. And it's still, we have it better than anyone else. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like just let that, you know, sink in for a second and then think about how often do we go through our day? You know, when I think of the consequence, cause I think that's a really interesting word because when I think of that, I think of taking a life, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And how, you have to reconcile that, you know, cause it's not something that, you know, that hunters do just kind of willy nilly, you know, or at least the ones that I associate myself with, I'm sure there are some, right. But I think yep. the good ones that represent things the right way and are doing it for the right reasons, and you can do it for a host of reasons. But like, if there's not a sense of gravity, you, if you don't have a sense of gravity in that moment, then mm-hmm. like, I'm not sure you're human, yep. you know what I mean? And so I really like that word consequence. Cause I think, man, every day you should wake up and do something with consequence. It's like for yep. me, it lets me know that I'm alive, you know? Well, it, it does. And it, it's like a platform. I don't know how to put this. It's like a weird platform for failure. Like you're, you're choosing to do something you're probably going to fail at. And it might just be, like you said, you know, you went and sat in a cold front, you didn't see a deer or it might be you shot one in the guts and didn't find it. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a spectrum there. There is. And I, I'm not saying like the, you know, gut shooting one is like motivation to go out there but there's, there's like weight to this, the, the entire process. And we really distill this down a lot of times in the hunting media, partially just because of how we have to present information, which is why I love podcasts. Cause mm-hmm. you can get into this stuff. Yeah. But 
there's a lot to this. There's a, there's a lot going on there and there's, there's something to like human nature to need that challenge and require it and, and to go through those failures and to move, you know, to level up once in a while and then get your ass kicked and get knocked down <laughs> again. And you know, like, I think there's something inherently, you know, evolutionary or however we got it where we just, we just become better people because of that. And you, you know, like it kind of makes me think, uh, you know, like it's so easy to go on social media and, you know, tear somebody down or start a thread on both site and tear somebody down or something like that because there's no consequence to it. Right. Like if you had to say that to somebody's face, there, there could be like a very real consequence right. that you're, you know, picking up your teeth with broken fingers. Right. <laughs> right. Like, yeah. But, but it's like, it's an easy thing to do and people will do that kind of stuff. But what, what does that mean? Like there, there's like, that's a, just a dumb little thing you're doing. Like for some, reason because you're not happy with yourself like like to challenge yourself and, and feel better about getting somewhere with it even if it is something as hard as you know bow hunting public land whitetails which we we talk about it and you know you, you ask stories or you'll tell a story about hunting or something and it sounds like oh yeah well i went down to iowa and you know screwed up a couple times and then i killed this buck like man there's so much <laughs> layered in there that's not yeah. you're not talking about you know, and, and that's the kind of stuff that's just personal and you just have to use that to be better and use it to enrich your life. But you're not going to sell a magazine story around it or you're right. not going to do a whole podcast episode on all the deer you didn't see. Right. You know, like, <laughs> but it's but it's all a part of it. Right. And it's and I would say in a lot of ways, man, it's in oftentimes it's the most important part of it. You know, it's yep. like, you know, because to me, it's like I think back on some of the hunts that I've had and like some of the. I can think back to like specific moments and specific hunts that have had a large impact, not just on me as a hunter, but as a, as a person, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? It was just like how it shaped me to a degree, right? Like there, there were a few, you know, we can all probably think about them in our life, like a few like watershed moments that we've had. Right. And mm -hmm. for me, there was really, there were three that I can, that I can think of that come to mind that really stick out. One was, I think I was probably, 21, 22 years old. I was in music and doing things that people in music do, you know, which I don't condone nor, nor do I, nor do I recommend, <laughs> you know, but it was one of those things where it's like, I was in it pretty deep and it, I had to kind of come to like a, had to have like a, a moment of reconciling with myself. Right. And I wanted to have a, I wanted to have a, get a record deal and I wanted to tour and I wanted to do all these things. And I remember saying to myself, and I actually told my daughter this story, Whereas like I had a honest conversation with myself in that moment where I said, you know, you're at the age now, it was like 21, 22, where your word means something, right? Like where people are going to remember what you say you are going to do and then what you ultimately end up doing if those two things marry up. Right. And so mm -hmm. what I said to myself was like, you're either going to become a person who talks about doing shit or you're going to be a person who does shit. Right. Mm -hmm. And in that moment I decided I wanted to be a person who does shit. And then I went, put a band together, got a record deal toured, like did all the things I wanted to do. The other one was chasing this one specific deer. Um, and it was starting to ruin hunting for me a little bit. Cause I was stressing out over a specific deer and I went and killed like a, a Pennsylvania public land basket eight point. And it was like one of my favorite deer to kill <laughs> because it just, it taught me, it retaught me how to, um, enjoy hunting again. Right. And mm -hmm. to remove like the outside expectation and to hunt for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was really like this trip in Iowa. Cause you know, I'm, I'm a dad and I remember after I missed that deer twice and, um, I was, 
I mean, I was fed up. I mean, we talked about it on your podcast. It's like, I, there was a moment where I thought about coming home yep. and in the middle of the hunt. And I thought to myself, you know, this is kids have a funny way of doing this to you when you're a dad. You know, I thought to myself, I was like, what advice would I give my daughter if she was up against something that was really tough that she failed at a couple of times and just didn't feel like she could push through it? Like, what would my mm-hmm. advice to her be? You know? And I was like, my advice to her would be is like, you missed two deer. Good. Like make it tougher. I want it yep. to be harder. You know what I mean? Like I want it to be harder that way when I succeed that I can look in the mirror and say, there wasn't anything that was going to keep me from being successful, you know? Yep. And, and it was in that moment where I was like, dude, what am I even thinking about leaving? I was like, this, that's a quitter. I was like, that's a quitter's mentality. It's like, let's go get this thing done, you know? And those were three like very watershed moments that, you know, that I had in life. And two of them, two of them were hunting and it was all based on consequences and resilience out of those consequences. Yep. Yeah, dude, you learn a lot. I, I want to just, can we just back up a second and talk about the music thing? Sure. Cause that's another, I, I feel, I know we're going way off. No. We're, we're driving right let's, down in the ditch let's, here. Let's put her in a ditch, man. <laughs> I feel like, you know, we, we talk about hunting. This is the space. This is what we're, we're talking about, but doing just difficult things matters a lot. And you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. I, I love playing guitar. Mm-hmm. Like my little girls are playing guitar now awesome. a little bit, you know, they're trying yep. and one of them really wants to, one of them kind of doesn't. So whatever, you know, they'll, they'll go however they want with it, but that's just another thing. And you know, they, this probably sounds like cocky or like conceited or something, but when you start with it, with an instrument like that, you are nothing but terrible yep. for so long and there's nothing but pain in your fingers, when you're building up your calluses and you're trying to learn and you're like, you watch somebody play a bar chord or something, you're like, I cannot get my fingers to do that. And it is such a long game process to learn how to play, even even at like a low level, mm-hmm. but play like, you know, adequate rhythm for something or, you know, learn some simple songs. It's like, it is such an investment. But when you get on the other side and you get to the enjoyment side of it, where you can go, I just enjoy sitting down playing this and, and trying to learn new songs you suddenly realize like what it is, like what, what, why that other part was important. And it makes the rest of it so much easier, even if you'll never be very good or you'll never master it or whatever, like, you know, like obviously you're not going to master it, but like you can get to a point where you just enjoy it. And I think, you know, what you're talking about, like missing those deer and talking to your daughter about it. When you talk about deer hunting, a lot of people get into the stage where they want that validation by the big buck kill, or they Mm -hmm. want the easy bucks but they don't understand like that, that shit doesn't matter. Like nobody cares if you kill big bucks, like you, are you enjoying this or not? And if you're not, it, it might not be because it's too hard. It might be because you're not accepting that it's hard. That's, you know, like that is it, a good point right there, man. It, it might just be, you're looking at this the wrong way. Like I want to be like the TV guys and I want to go sit over somebody else's bait pile and shoot one and move on to the next state. That's not fun. Like I've done that before. Like mm-hmm. it's, there's, it's, it's nice to get an easy one once in a while, but there's, there's nothing that's going to keep you moving toward a place where you're, you, you, you like develop the ability to enjoy it unless you go through a bunch of crappy challenges and it takes you a long time and kicks you in the butt and you finally get like to that next stage and you can go, okay, now I know that that work is worth it. And even I know it's going to suck again. It's going to suck next year. And it's going to suck the year after but it's oh, it's it's easier to accept it because you can get through it. The same thing happens with, you know, trail running and all kinds of stuff. And you know, like guitar, like we talked about, that there's so many things that are worth it 
that are just freaking hard. Yeah. I think, dude, when you said you have to accept that it, that it's hard, like that is like, put that on a t-shirt for deer hunters. <laughs> you know what I mean? For <laughs> bow hunters. Like seriously, because that is it. It's like, once you, I think it's with anything that's challenging. It's like once you can give yourself to it and just know that the work is required, like mm-hmm. the work will teach you how, like you just got to follow the work. You know what I mean? Like it's going to be there for you to do every day and you just do the work and you will ultimately yep. get there. And like when you said another word gift, like that's the thing that like, to me, it's like, whether it's guitar and I'll use guitar since we were talking about that as a reference, like it's, it's weird. Like I'll sit down now still today. And I was playing you know earlier today, like before we hopped on to do this podcast. And sometimes I'll sit, be sitting with my wife. We having a glass of wine at night and I'll sit down and start playing songs and singing. And I don't do it as actively as I used to when I was in the band on the road and stuff like that. It's like where that was all I did all day long, every day, you know, now it's like, maybe I don't pick it up for two weeks or three weeks or whatever, you know, and I'm just busy or whatever. And then I'll sit down and decide to play for like an evening. And I'm like, it blows my mind that I can still sit down to this day with a guitar and go, I'm going to learn that song. And like, look at some, look at some chords or whatever. And then like, look at the lyrics or whatever, and then sit down and just be able to play and sing a song. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I can just sit down and play and sing a song. And I was like, and that is a gift. You know what I mean? I was like, no, I I worked for it. Right. I was like, but man, it's like every time you can do that is a gift. And every time you go and you fail in the whitetail timber and you learn something and you put it together and it gives you success somewhere else, it's like that learning opportunity was a gift. You know, it's like recognize it for that, appreciate it. And if you will let it, it's going to give you more than just successful deer hunts. It's going to, it's going to help you as a man or a woman, you know what I mean? Just in knowing who you are and, and, and help you progress in life, man. That's like, I truly believe that it's like, for me, hunting's very much an emotional and spiritual thing. Uh, dude, totally. And I, I think it, I think it may, this is weird, but like, I think it is a bridge from who we are to who we want to be to some extent. Man, I think this is yeah. why, uh, so many people are drawn to elk hunting because if you, if you get that Colorado tag or you buy that Idaho tag or you draw that Montana tag or whatever, you, you, now you're like on the hook for something you're accountable. And so it's like, you're going to probably start getting in a little better shape and you're going to start thinking about this and looking at the maps and look at the aerial photography and you're going to be shooting a little bit more. And it's just kind of like our own personal way to kick ourselves in the ass and and get a little closer to the person we want to be. You know, like mm-hmm. people, people will shit on guys like Cameron Haynes all the time. Like, man, there probably aren't that many people who wouldn't trade places with him. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so. And he's just like, you know, he's a, maybe a weird example, but I think that that elk tag and just like, just like buying that first over the counter tag or, you know, drawing that first Iowa whitetail tag or saying, you know, me and my buddies are going here or there. You're accountable. It's like, this is like maybe a bad analogy, but it's kind of the same thing. When you, when you find out your wife's pregnant, you're like, okay, everything's different now. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I have like, there's no walking away. Like there's, you, you got to make a living. You got to do all kinds of stuff. You have to take care of it. Like it changes the perspective forever. Yeah. And it, it brings you closer to the person that you actually want to be. Yeah. And I think that sometimes hunting does that for us too, even though it's like really easy to kind of be flipping about it and be like, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Or it's just a, it's just a pastime for a lot of people. It is mm-hmm. like for the majority of people it is. But some people, they kind of like, they kind of, they kind of take it for something different and use it for just so much more than a means to the end, which is a dead buck. Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. And I think with that dude, 
I think that's a great place to wrap it up. We got all into the feels at the end, all theoretical, <laughs> getting all Socrates and Plato up in this <laughs> up in this piece. Uh, but man, before I let you go, I love having you on, dude. You got an open invite to come on this show anytime you want to. But before I let you go, let folks know where they can find out more about you, where they can hear more about or hear more from you and read more from you. Sure. I appreciate it, man. Um, you know, the podcast that you mentioned, Hunt for Real, you can find that everywhere podcasts are. Uh, Sporting Dog Talk, if you love working dogs, if you're interested in dogs with a job, hunting dogs, um, that one's so much fun. We talk to just amazing experts in the canine field, trainers and breeders and all kinds of stuff. Um, Writing a ton of stuff for Meat Eater, you know, themeateater.com right now. North American Whitetail, Bowhunter Magazine, I have a public land column there. Bunch of stuff in uh, in, uh, Gundog Magazine, sorry. And then Wildfowl Magazine, um, I got a book out there if you want to look at that, bull hunting, public land, whitetails, um, all kinds of stuff. It's all, all over the place. You, you can have more of me than you'll ever, <laughs> ever want if you, if you really start digging into it. Just Google him and you'll find all that information and then just don't look at the police record. That's all we ask. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Tony, man, I appreciate you coming on, brother. I wish you nothing but the, uh, the best success this year, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch before uh, before deer season kicks off. Awesome. Thanks so much, buddy. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening, and if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a subscribe there as well. I'll be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Gumleaf USA Boots. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.